Why are we talking about this right now? Let's I don't know. Let's, let's do this. Hello, and welcome to the Better the Bookshelf podcast, episode 37. In this episode, we are doing Ghost Boys by Jewel Parker Rhodes. I am Ryan, and with me is my good buddy and fellow host, Jacob. Yes, hello and welcome to the Better the Bookshelf podcast, our little book club, book cult, book something or other, episode 37. Yes. This is normally where I would say, this is going to be a traditional episode with all this and that and the other, but this is not going to be a traditional episode because as we teased last week, the circumstances surrounding kind of why we're making this episode, the book that's been chosen, and even our target audience, completely different. Yes. So just to give a little bit of background real quick before we jump into it, uh, this is the first time that we've, I, I would like to say, gotten a recommendation on a book, but done something outside of just reading for our own sort of interest or our own sort of morbid curiosity for the sake of the show. This, yeah. we kind of had some help, a friend of ours uh, as a teacher teaches seventh grade reading, and so she had reached out to us about uh, putting something together, perhaps on on one of the books that are kind of on their optional reader list to, to help with their students. And and I think that they're getting into podcasts or they're even working on maybe like creating podcasts for, for content or for, you know, the purposes surrounding their book. And so, yeah. of course, we, we jump on this opportunity to be, you know, wholesome, awesome book podcast people. So we're, we're doing Young Adult, which is completely out of our, out of our realm of, I guess, normal digested yeah. content, but I think of all the things that we could possibly jump into for, for young adult, this was a pretty interesting one to go with. So for our normal readers yeah. at home, keep in mind, this one's going to be a, a little bit different uh, of an episode because of kind of the the age demographic that this book is geared towards and just the, the general demographic that we're going to be kind of talking to. It's going to be a little bit different, I guess, than our, than our normal readers. So yes, absolutely stick around and... Uh, Check that out with us because we're going to do our normal shtick with the book, but we're also going to kind of take a little bit out of here because this book is really heavy on themes and subject matter that kind yep. of relates to uh, society at large and things that we have. And I know that we're going to spend a great deal of the time this episode uh, getting into that. But yeah. before we do all of that, uh, we're going to obviously tell you a little bit about the author, Jewel Parker Rhodes. I'll give you a brief summary we're just going to get into it. We've got a lot of questions. We actually have some study guide questions that are interesting at the back of this book that we're going to get into as well. So right. that's going to be fun. And then uh, I think we're going to eschew rating, at least in a traditional system, uh, in a traditional sense on this, because of the fact that this is kind of, at least for now, a little one-off episode for us. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I, I think that as as we kind of go through the, the whole conversation, you know, I, I think that it is important that, you know, we acknowledge sort of who we are as, as individuals and, you know, as a podcast. And, uh, you know, one of the things that we wanted to do, you know, when we started this whole podcast was just to read more books. So sure. on one hand, it's, it's cool to, to get into the YA stuff. Um, but we're hoping to that, you know, through this podcast that, uh, Maybe especially, you know, Miss Gomez's class, um, you know, will sort of get a different sense for what it means to engage with reading, right? Um, you know, one of the greatest things that books can do for us is to to give us perspectives 
uh, on somebody else's lives or times uh, or experiences that we probably would never encounter otherwise. And you know, this is this is a great book uh, to do that to get in touch with some of these uh, social justice topics that that we'll go through, which you know hit the front page of of our you know news sources. Every few months, it seems like you know there's a few days. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean it's, it's 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 very hard to to try to take in what's going on around you without being not necessarily inundated with this, but at least sort of open to this and aware yeah. of this. So having that opportunity through reading to kind of tackle that on another level, just again, it not only does it kind of like elevate the conversation that you're having uh, with other people or with peers or anything, but even just the conversation you have with yourself when you're sort of debating your thoughts on these issues, whenever you have material like this to kind of draw from to go, okay, well, here's something that's done completely through an experience that is a, a sort of a lens into a world and identity that I don't have. It gives me an opportunity, right. especially, you know, we're, we're both, you know, in our thirties. Um, so just even the when we talk about the age difference and the age experiences, let alone sort of racial and, and economic and, and, and social differences that we have there, just that difference alone kind of allows us to sort of peer into this and, and, and see these experiences in a way that, that traditionally you would not be able to do. So, yep. So let's get into, uh, to Jewel Parker Rhodes and, uh, then we'll, we'll hit up our summary and, and kick this episode off in a formal way. So, uh, Jewel Parker Rhodes was born in 1954 in beautiful Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, she's written. Is it beautiful? Is Pittsburgh I, beautiful? I love Pittsburgh. I've never been to Pittsburgh. I cannot recommend Pittsburgh enough. I think of all the East Coast cities that that I've been to, uh, which I count that as East Does Coast because yeah, it's, like, it's West it's, Pennsylvania. It's West Penn. I don't it, know if it's East Coast. It is East, east of the Mississippi, so therefore it's East Coast to me. And just just go with it. Anyway, so Chicago's East Coast. Yeah, look. Uh but <laughs> Pittsburgh we we had some friends uh or we have some friends out there and we visited them and I come from the Midwest, so you know, my expectations were not great. Like Midwest cities are kind of you know, tend to be smaller industrial kind of cities in Pittsburgh, sure. you know, steel industry. Yeah. Uh you know, I kind of had the same expectation, but it, it is like beautiful like nestled in in hills and uh the city is going through a lot of revitalization revitalization efforts um i mean i was i was really caught off guard by how cool pittsburgh was uh and people there were were really friendly um so yeah i would recommend pittsburgh but okay. uh so she was she was born there um she's written uh a lot of uh, different novels. Um, she does have some uh, some other YA books uh, called uh, The Towers Falling, uh, Ninth Ward, Sugar, and Bayou Magic. Uh, she's also written um, some uh, adult novels, one of which I, I read um, in college. I took a voodoo literature class uh, that was all about like the you know Creole and Afro-Caribbean sort of voodoo yeah. uh stuff uh so she wrote a book called voodoo dreams um that was part of uh the marie laveau uh kind of trilogy and and uh it was so cool uh totally different style obviously sure. than, than what we read from her uh but i if you are interested in reading more i i loved that book and i would i would definitely recommend that uh she received a uh, bachelor of arts in drama criticism and a master of arts in english and a Doctor of Arts in English and Creative Writing from Carnegie Mellon. Okay. Uh, so drama criticism. Yeah. I think that's the first time I've ever heard of that as a uh I don't know, as like a as a bachelor program. That's interesting. Is that where you just sit there in like in a live performance and just go, uh 
Uh, I don't. I clap. think that's probably grossly oversimplifying it. Okay. But yeah, I'm just. I have, or completely wrong. But I have. Uh, I have no context uh, whatsoever. Uh, but she has. Uh, she's also received awards uh, for her, for her teaching from uh, Cal State, uh, from ASU. Um, she is definitely embedded in uh, the you know educational uh, side of side of things. So uh, she's also received <laughs> awards. Uh, for her writing, she got a uh, an American Book Award uh, in 2013. Uh, do you have a summary prepared for this time skipping book? Yeah, a very basic one. Um, Ghost Boys is the story of Jerome, a boy who is uh, shot by police in Chicago, and we sort of witness the events surrounding his family and uh, the police officer's family through the eyes of him as a ghost, while also kind of getting historical context on other similar incidences throughout uh, time with his his little, not so much spirit guide of sorts, but kind of ghost guide in uh, Emmett Till. Yeah, that that works. So, I just... Where do we begin? I, so, I think we, we, we should start with sort of revealing a, a very important underlying truth about the, the narrative itself, which is, this is really the story of Tamir Rice. This is almost verbatim what happened to him uh sure and, and he's brought up you know numerous times in the book as kind of like because this is a this is sort of a i mean it's a fictional event but it's based obviously on reality and we get all of these references to other events and yeah tamir rice is obviously referenced several times and so it's kind of yeah you get the feeling that it sort of flows along the same sort of current as that yeah i mean like she literally took like the deficiency in like the uh uh, 911 dispatchers language from the Tamir Rice thing yeah. brought it into this book. I mean, the way that she describes the shooting happening, that's exactly the way that uh, Tamir Rice was was killed, the fake gun. And I mean, it is everything uh, that it, that are major details in that event uh, that are the the structure for this. So I think, you know, that's that's really important. Um, and I think it's really sobering, too, when you when you read this book and you get this this perspective of what happened, uh, what happens after knowing that this actually this this yeah. is a thing. This isn't this isn't just uh, something that that she invented. Sure, yeah. I mean, it, I think it's really important to when you're writing about something like this to have at least you know facts that are associated with it grounded in in yeah. real instances because otherwise it's kind of like ah well they wouldn't do this this wouldn't happen. It's like well it did happen. Um, and, and these sort of things mirror almost identically to, to another case. And so right. we, we've seen these sorts of things happen and we've seen this, this sort of response to it. We've seen this sort of failure on, uh, you know, law enforcement's part or dispatch's part to, you know, even with the whole rendering aid to him where they're just kind of yeah. standing there for, for minutes and minutes and, yeah. and doing nothing. It's you, you have these details in there in a fictional setting, but because it mirrors so closely an actual event, it gives that that weight to it. It gives that yep. sort of grounded nature to it that you go, okay, so this is fiction, but we're dealing with something. There's no sort of suspension of disbelief here. This can happen. Right. This has right. happened, and you should sort of, like, I know we're dealing with supernatural elements, obviously, when we talk about the, right. narrati- the narration, and, and we're seeing things kind of through this sort of top-down view, which which I think, even just to kind of get apart from that, is, yeah. is a really good choice for a narrative style because it gives us a first-person narration, but it also gives us this like level of omniscience that we otherwise would not be able to get. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, we you uh, uh, without just sort of having kind of a distinct and separate narrative. So we we see everything through Jerome's eyes. We never kind of leave that that viewpoint, which I think is really important to kind of get to the relatability of that character with the readers and just yep. sort of the underlying uncertainty and kind of the fear and just the questioning, like why did this happen and and you know all of that. I think it's really that alone was a really important aspect of how this story was told. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it it does what is so important when, you know, tragedies happen is you have to give a voice to victims, right? Mm -hmm. And it is a lot harder, um, you know, when you're dealing with statistics and facts in, you know, say, a, a, a legalistic kind of sense in a courtroom or, you know, uh, just in, like charts and, and things like that about gun violence or whatever. Uh, it's it's hard to relate to some of the, the information until you have a person uh, that you can sort of look in the eye, as it were, like you do in this book and, you know, say, OK, this is this is a boy who likes to do these things, who has these people in his life, who deals with situations that are not too dissimilar from you know, certainly what I experienced in childhood to a, a certain degree. Sure. Uh, you know, and and to sort of expand on those things in a way that's not uh, like editorial in nature. Mm-hmm. Um, but by the same token, I think that the the thing that I struggled with with this book in its narrative style um, was some of the, I don't want to call it, editorializing but the um the sort of on the nose description of past events of um you know social context and and that sort of thing so i kind of wanted to talk a little bit about like why that is that was necessary for for this book just keeping the sort of young adult uh literature in focus well the first thing that pops out to me whenever or whenever I was listening, I did the audiobook version of this, which yeah. was really good. Um, one of the things when you kind of get this sort of explicit details and less sort of symbolism and you, like you said, more on the nose with our generation and with older, you you have this historical context. But with with younger readers, I guess even ones that this book is geared towards like Emmett Till would be something that without that vast sort of without that that external knowledge, this is a really good starting point for that. This is a really good introductory point into those historical cases. And so, yeah, it does serve a purpose of doing that, albeit, you know, for someone who has this context, for someone who kind of understands this, these issues a little bit more, um, historically, it, it does seem there's, there's not that degree of subtlety that you typically expect when you kind of have symbolic things, when you have kind of the ghost boys that represent, you know, all of these, all of these young black men that have been killed, we get that. But in this book, sometimes it's like, oh, but no, it's this guy and this guy and this guy and this right, guy right. to reinforce that it's like, oh, hey, here's another instance perhaps that you can go look into or you can go read into. It's kind of a an off ramp into going and getting more context on these things to sort of further solidify what it is that you're reading in the book. Yeah. And, and I think that's that's so important. And, and you really hit the nail on the head is that this this book is uh, an introduction to the topic, and not only does it try to bring um, to to light the issue in the you know fictional narrative of of the ghost, 
but it also serves as laying a foundation for all of the other information that's necessary to begin to understand how to take this text, this story, this experience, this tragedy, and to turn it into something bigger, right? It, sure. it, it really, this book at its heart is about building understanding and hopefully building action based on that. Yeah, right? I mean, at the core of it, we do get the story and we get a lot of this historical context, but so much of the message in the book is, okay, so what now? Right. You know, one of the key things is, you know, the dead can't, it's, we have the dead are, are sort of ever present and whether it's their like physical manifestation that can be seen by Sarah or, uh, you know, uh, Emmett, I God, I think it was Thurgood Marshall that he said that yeah. you could see him. And, yep. you know, whether we have this like sort of like actual physical connection, it's the idea of these instances that sort of resonate with the living and, and allow them to kind of go on to hopefully make change, to make progress and in, in, in preventing more instances like this from happening in the future, which is which is a nice kind of optimistic idea that sort of permeates the last, I don't know, third of the book. Yeah. After we get sort of the bulk of this story at all. But yeah. So I want to get into some of the actual study questions in that are in the book, because, you know, I think these are things that, you know, we can start to or I should say discussion questions. They're not study questions. They're, they're I, I think it's important that everybody kind of sees the, the same sort of thing and yeah. starts to, to talk about those things. And, you know, as we sort of launch off from here into these these sort of tangential themes and, and, uh, and discussions, you know, I, I want to make sure that we're clear that, you know, none of this is, uh, going to be comprehensive, right? The, the conversation around gun violence, around racism, around, uh, policing, around law, around, you know, all of these different subjects that are introduced here, what we can talk about in the time that we have is is not going to be you know exhaustive. So, yeah. you know, it is really a discussion. This these are you know the things that that we'll talk about are the things that come off the top of our head. Uh, and you know, I just I don't want it to be seen as a an authoritative, comprehensive you know response to any of these subjects by any means. Sure. So, the the first one I, I wanted to talk about since we were talking about Emmett Till was um, why does the book jump backwards and forwards in time? Um, does that serve a purpose? And I'm thinking about this question more in the context of um, Jerome's character. Um, we start with sort of a, a light version of the shooting itself in the beginning chapter, and then you know we return to a much more detailed version uh, at, at the, the end. end. But then there's there's also a lot of time hopping in between. Why Why do you think that that is a, a necessary thing in this book? Or, or do you think it was necessary? Well, for two reasons. I think one is stylistically, I think by having this, this sort of jumping back and forth between, all right, alive, and we're getting not only things that happen on that day, but we're getting sort of context of characters. Uh, after the fact, we get uh, context of Jerome throughout the day leading up to that and, and going into that kind of, mixed with his sort of present experience of everything that's happening while he's dead. I think it's a really good stylistic choice for reading sake, because had this been written just kind of as a, as a linear narrative, I don't think it would be as sort of impactful. I think that having that, the kind of jumping around adds that element to of 
not not confusion, but sort of that like slight undercurrent of like oh, man, this whole thing is is chaotic and yeah. the, the effect the ripple effect that it has on lives on both sides and and the ripple effect it has on kind of this this societal narrative you know it's 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 all over the place and so having having Jerome sort of jump around in between these two sort of things constantly as a reader you you feel that right. I feel more so as a reader and secondly I think the the jumping around and kind of back and forth I think it lends itself really well to to bringing in a, that sort of historical context that whenever we eventually get Emmett kind of fleshing out what happened to him to Jerome and and uh, when Sarah kind of gets that that input too, it makes a lot more sense when we now kind of have said, all right, this is a story that's it's going back and forth because we want to really go back, right, right, before that you know we go forward with with the things that are kind of happening now, well after the event, and we get sort of the end of this book where we not necessarily get a resolution, but we kind of at least lead off on a. Uh, as positive of a lining as you can get here when you have like actual action being taken by people or at least that sort of mindfulness with that. So I think it kind of serves both those purposes, both stylistically and just in the greater scheme of the narrative and how you want to get both the historical context and sort of what that will do to future actions. Yeah. I think the thing that I would add to that too, is that, you know, you get the, the comment, um, when you think that the ghost boys are going to disperse that they, they can't right yeah. until there is no more violence there's no more racism um and so i also think that there is sort of an illusion with the with the time jumping back and forth that none of this is ever really resolved in the in the past the present the future um that you know we're still still dealing with these issues we've been dealing with them for decades and decades and so I think the the time jump is also sort of a clever way to sort of you know bring bring about that that reality as yeah. well that that things are left uh, unresolved. Um, so one of the other questions that I that I thought was really interesting, and I I got to be honest, I struggled with the character of Sarah a lot. Yeah. And you know, again, this part of this is just you know coming at this as an adult, uh, and you know, part of it is just the the, the YA nature of of things. Uh, but you know, Sarah's character was you know obviously conflicted. She is a child. She sees Jerome after after he's dead and has you know this this relationship uh so she understands uh more than anybody else in this book I would argue uh the perspective of of all sides right mm -hmm. and um you know I I think at times that was a little bit difficult but what do you think is the purpose of Sarah's character and her having the ability to see Jerome and maybe I just answered that in part but what is it more importantly, what does her character symbolize? Well, you get that whole part where it's kind of allegorical to Peter Pan, and you have Pan mm -hmm. where he's kind of forever a child, and then you sort of contrast that with Jerome where he doesn't get to grow up. Right. Um, and then you you do see a little bit where she kind of, I guess she had mentioned where, you know, Wendy was the one that kind of was there for, for Peter to help, and, and she was kind of in that role of by by communicating with him by spreading that message by taking action towards hopefully at least doing her part to to try and curtail things like this happening in the future that she maybe obviously can't help Jerome but in doing so can help someone else grow up by avoiding that sort of incident 
Um, and she is obviously there as that sort of counterpoint to the haves and the have nots. Mm -hmm. The, the, you know, she lives in a nice house, goes to a nice school. Jerome, even early on in the book, he says, you know, to school, it's the mostly poor, the poor and the very poor. As long as his parents have both their jobs, they're only mostly poor. So, and you get the sense very early on. It's like, okay, Jerome is in, you know, these, this completely different situation. You have this, the description of that uh, park with the sort of like very rough bleachers put up and the basketball hoops kind of just mishmashed together without any, uh, any nets on them or anything with the contrasting of Sarah's neighborhood where you have, Oh, on every two door garage, you know, you have these, all that. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's, she exists to, to represent at least in this book on a, in a very basic and sort of on the nose level of the haves and the have nots. Yeah. But also I think on a more allegorical level, that kind of, connection with Peter Pan and and, right. and just the idea of, well, he never grows up and that sort of taken to this extreme of, well, when, you know, a 12 year old is, is shot and killed for no reason, he doesn't get to grow up either. And yeah. that's, you know, that's terrible. And I think the other part too, is that, you know, she symbolizes the sort of hope um, and activism, right? Sure. And you know we'll we'll talk about that some more as as we kind of continue the discussion later in the podcast. But um, you know, toward the end, she's making the uh, she's making the website. She's you know becoming informed. Uh, she's trying to to uh, make amends with her dad and to to you know heal that relationship, um, which has you know obviously become strained because of her her new perspective. And, you know, so I, I think Sarah's character also sort of represents the the objectives, the difficulty um, and the complexity of what it means to take a situation and to try to improve the world, you know, based on yeah. on, on your information and, and your new, you know, newfound perspective. Um but so, so what what about Carlos? So Carlos was was kind of an interesting character. Um, you know, he, he was the transplant from from San Antonio, uh, and obviously he was he was the one uh, who gave I almost said Tamir uh, Jerome the uh, the fake gun that yeah. obviously was the the reason that that he got killed or was the physical <laughs> uh, visual reason. Um, why do you think that it was important for Carlos to to own up to um, Jerome's family that he was the one essentially responsible for that? Well, I mean, in a way, it it just kind of I I think Carlos' character there was to represent that sort of guilt that exists in survivors whenever your yeah. friends or family uh, with somebody who is killed or loses their life in some incident there's always that survivor's guilt that right. exists yep. in some form or fashion where it's like, well, this happened because I didn't do this, or this happened because I did this, or this happened because I didn't do this. And you see Carlos kind of struggling with that whenever Jerome goes and visits his room. And it's finally whenever Carlos can kind of have that cathartic moment with his grandmother and say, well, I gave him the gun that she sort of goes, well, it's not your fault. You didn't kill him. It, it, none of this was your fault simply because you did that. This was, this is, it's not, it's not guilt that you have to bear. Um, and I think that that's an important thing to, to keep in mind that I think is as human beings, oftentimes we are very quick to try to 
try to figure out or, or, or try to put one reason why something happens and says, well, if this didn't happen, I mean, his grandmother even does it too. Well, I knew he was being kind of, I knew he was kind of hiding something from me that I shouldn't have right. let him go out and play. And, you know, as, as human beings, we often in, in things that are difficult situations like this, we want to just condense it all down into if I didn't do this or this didn't happen, then this wouldn't happen. When the reality of it is, is there's, you know, we see it. There's so many different instances of, one little thing happening and that kind of manipulates sort of the trajectory of the events that are going to happen and something else and that manipulates the trajectory and something else that manipulates the trajectory. And then we get this sort of uh, effect of, of everything happening when the reality of it is, is the people that are close to him and all that, that, that have this tremendous guilt for this, they, they're not responsible for that. It's just sort of a, a human reaction to loss. And I think that that, uh, that is kind of that, that's what Carlos's character at least sort of represents in, in that instance to me. Yeah. I mean, it's Carlos didn't necessarily do anything wrong in that, you know, he was trying to share a toy, right? Like that's, that's what it boils down to. But, you know, I, I think that that in and of itself illustrates sometimes how the smallest decisions that we make can have really grave outcomes. Yeah. Right. And, you know, I, th- I think especially like when you're when you're a kid, sometimes, you know, things happen uh, and n- sometimes it's it's nothing even remotely approaching what we're dealing with in, the, in this book. But, you know, you get a bad grade in school, you uh, you break something, you, you, you know, you don't do what you're supposed to do. And you think that, like, you know, there, there are going to be these consequences that, you know, just cascade on and on forever. And you kind of can't see past whatever whatever it is that happened, right? Yeah. And you see Carlos, once he's able to sort of release himself from that burden by telling the truth, um, which, you know, was well-received, obviously, by, by Jerome's family, that not only did he sort of heal himself in, in that, but, uh, you know, everybody was able to start, you know, moving forward. And no matter what's going on, um, you know, even in situations as as horrendous as this, time always marches on, right? Yeah. And uh, the the burden of of people that are that are left behind when you know somebody dies is to figure out how to how to navigate that, right? And you know, Carlos tr- tries to step in and and kind of be a brother and bring you know his family. Uh, together with with Jerome's, and that's that's really kind of a, a beautiful thing to come out of that tragedy, right? To yeah. to share, you know, the culture, like the the uh, Dia de los Muertos stuff. Yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, I found that you know especially sort of calming, you know, as as things started to to wrap up in this book. So, yeah, I think I, I felt I felt awful for for Carlos, but I mean, it's it's such an important perspective, you know, when it comes to when it comes to tragedy. Um, so maybe we can use this next question as uh, kind of our, our launching off point into a really uh, probably big discussion and, and <laughs> a bridge. Yeah. It'll have to, to be a bridge. To there's, just, there's too much, but yeah, to, we would be doing a disservice if we didn't sort of go outside of the book and talk about sort of the themes and subject matter Yeah, on a, on a more real and less specific to just what happens in this book sort of sense. So on, on page uh, 174, um, she writes, can't undo wrong, can only do our best to make things right. 
So what is what is the significance of that like sentiment and how do we even start by to to make things right? I mean that that's the million dollar question because I think that that's applicable not even in just this situation but in so many so many things that affect so many people within society and the world at large and and even in small even just in interpersonal relationships whenever you uh, hurt someone or, or you lie to someone or something like that. It's like, well, you can't fixate on sort of how you've wronged. You you only have to sort of deal with what the consequences are now and how do you sort of improve that for the future at large, um, which is kind of the overall, I wouldn't say positive undercurrent in this book, but at least the optimistic in that you see you see sort of things at play that, that lead you to believe that some lives have been changed to to go and positively influence this uh, for the better in the future. Um, so yeah, I mean it's it's just the idea that you can use the past or you can use you know the wrongs that have occurred as a template in some ways for what not to do. Uh, but you use it as a learning experience. But really, you you can't change things. You can only improve things in the future based on based on kind of what you've learned, what you've experienced, and what you're willing to to do to make things sort of edge back towards back towards right. So, I th- I think we should start this kind of bigger conversation in a in a small way, and I th- I think we should start with language, right? So. In, in this book, um, I believe it was Sarah who uh, actually might have been Jerome in his in his ghost form uh, says that uh, the officer uh, is racist. Um, and I think that that term gets thrown around a lot, especially, you know, if you're on the Internet, uh, certainly like in the news, uh, you know, you, you hear people accusing other people of, of being racist. Right. And so I just wanted to give everybody the like literal dictionary definition of racism. And then we can kind of expand on like what, what sort of other forms of racism there actually are, because it's really not that it's not that simple, but the dictionary definition is prejudice, discrimination, or antagonism directed against someone of a different race. And they tag on this part that I don't, I don't necessarily agree with, but it is based on the belief that one's own race is superior. Uh, I don't think that that, that tag ne- is necessary to define racism personally, uh, because I, I don't think that you have to feel superior necessarily to exhibit those other traits, but uh, certainly, you know, I didn't, I didn't write the dictionary definition. I- I think that's fair. I think that, see, the thing for me is I I think that racism, it does kind of embody that sort of like superiority of, whereas mm-hmm. you have sort of as a subsect of it as prejudice, where you're acting, you're acting towards people differently because they are of a different race than you. Yeah. And you're not necessarily, you could be doing that not necessarily because you're like, oh, well, I'm, I'm white and he's black, so I'm clearly right. better and I'm going to act towards him in this different way. That might not be your, your motivation for that. It mm-hmm. might just be that, well, I, I don't like the way this guy's acting or anything like this. And because, you know, I, I remember this with, with some other guy that was, that was black, I'm going to act this way towards him where it's less the, 
I don't know. It's 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 kind of interchangeable, really, when you talk about sort of prejudice and racism. And I can understand the the idea that you can be prejudiced towards someone without believing that whole like, well, my race is the you know the traditional like Southern Ku Klux Klan yeah, line yeah, of like right. what you know we're we're the superior bloodline or any of that stuff. You know, you can act you can act in a way that's prejudicial towards people, and that you know we've seen in instances sort of reduces their their civil rights or their freedoms or this or this that and the other because you simply uh view them as you know we see it in this book you view them as a threat whether rightfully right. or wrongfully and and that i feel like it's tricky because you kind of have this whole nebulous thing of separate from the very traditional idea because when you think of racism in a traditional historical sense you think of like racial superiority at least that right. was kind of the that was sort of the the underlying reason for well we can't we can't have our kids you know go together. I, why is this the voice I slip into? I slip into that I like don't know. southern that's your, that yeah. southern comfort you know old man old white racist dude voice. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, you, a lot of ways on a historical context, the idea of racial superiority and whatnot played a lot into sort of the decision making from that. And I think now um, it's less so the. It's less so the actual like scientific idea. The idea doesn't hold any water. Basically, the the idea of there being uh, like tangible differences for any reasonably intelligent person to to sort of feel other other than there are no reasonable you know tangible differences between us that would cause you to believe that you're superior inferior for any way for anybody to have that belief still would just be incredibly yeah. ignorant. So now you kind of have more of this subtlety of it where you kind of get into right. the realm where I think you're talking about where it's like, all right, let's kick that yeah. last sentence off and let's just talk about how you treat people um, because they're different than you. Not because right. you believe whether you're superior to them or not, but because they're different, you're going to act towards them in a different way. Yeah. And yeah. So. Yeah. And so I, I started looking into like some like theories about like why racism exists and you know, okay. there's, there's a, there's a ton of different stuff, but uh, just a few things that I, that I think are, are interesting. One is sort of like a historical, like etymology, like how did racism start? And one theory is that racism uh, began because historically humans of different physical like geographic locations on the earth did not see each other for most of human time right sure. if if you look at the entire scope of of mankind i mean we are talking about millions of years of evolution and tens of thousands of years of of humankind where we've had you know established culture and it it's really not until the last several hundred years where we have been able to transport ourselves to other physical areas across the world to encounter people that are vastly different from us. Sure. And so one theory is that, you know, that it, it is a relatively modern phenomenon in, in part because of that previous like geographic separation. And the, the thing that I think is, is really interesting. And I think for me, the, the reason that rings true is not so much um, that people believe themselves superior inherently over other people. It's that we as humans feel the need to have sort of a coalition 
uh, that we belong to, right? Sure. So uh, being Texan, being American, being white, being black, being Latino, being uh, LGBTQ, right? Like we create these sort of silos to help identify ourselves to make us feel like we belong to something. And there are certainly positive uh, aspects to that, right? We can uh, build up historically um, disadvantaged groups of people, uh, give them a collective voice to, you know, bring about social justice, right? Sure. And that is an admirable thing. But what you see on the other side is essentially, you know, prejudice that that forms. You get the us versus them mentalities, right? And, you know, a lot of times, you know, we talk about uh, we talk about racism, you know, in terms of, you know, I, th- I think a lot of people, and maybe, maybe this is just because I'm, I'm white that when I think of racism, I think it's like a white person thing that we inflict upon other people. But, you know, as, as you encounter different people, everybody has some sort of, uh, sort of subconscious bias toward sure. Other people. And and the crazy thing is it's not even, it doesn't even just exist in like people that are, you know, obviously between uh, African-Americans and whites, like we have these obvious like physical differences. I mean, you even see sometimes like in areas in, in Eastern and Western Europe or, or even early on in uh, the, the early 20th century of the U.S. where you have this sort of like sort of segregationist mentality between what you would consider kind of like, you know, oh, the Irish and, uh, you know, the Italians. Oh, yeah. well, they... You know, I'm clearly this. And so, yeah, it's it is it is odd that you kind of have this, you know, you have this desire for people to latch on to to latch on to sort of like foundations of their identity. And in doing so, you kind of now create these chasms between people that that otherwise don't exist, because the reality is, is most experience, most human experience is shared experience. I mean, the the something in 90 percent of the of the thoughts that you have, of the feelings that you have, of the life experiences that you have, of the um, the things that you go through on a daily, on a yearly, in a lifetime, are shared by you know billions and billions of other people on this planet. Now, it manifests in different ways, but the human experience in and of itself is such a hugely shared experience that the idea that we focus so much and we fixate so much on the on the small kind of individual, you know, oh, nuances that that separate, well, his experience is different than my experience, so I fit in this group and that you just don't kind of understand and we'll just kind of be over here and maybe we'll look down on you or maybe we'll sort of like avoid you in all in all costs. It's it's so reductive and it it's so like anti anti-human. I mean to yeah, be I mean yeah. that's, you know, and it's it's weird kind of the psychology that that manifests that sort of behavior, but you like you said, I mean, I think, yeah, I think you, you're on the, on point there in saying that a lot of that from a historical context comes from just a lack of experience. You know, whenever yep. you finally kind of meet groups that uh, aren't, they don't, they don't believe the same things as you. They don't necessarily share the same lifestyle as you. They don't, you know, they don't look just like you. Then sometimes you're prone to just sort of be like, oh, well, I don't trust them because they're not us. Right. And so then, you know, kind of bringing it back into the context of, of this book and, you know, I, I, we need to talk about, you know, institutional racism and, and that sort of concept. So, you know, it's, it's a simple fact that, you know, when it comes to policing, uh, you know, black Americans are, um, I don't want to say targeted, that is not at all the right word, but I'm, I'm struggling to think of, uh, are, are 
I guess, engaged by police officers, whether that's, you know, violent crime or, you know, or sorry, violence or uh, just general crime stuff at a higher rate than than other races. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can always make the argument that there is there are certain economic reasons for that. Right. Uh, That crime, you know, thrives in in uh, in a community that is economically disadvantaged. Uh, and historically, you know, we have seen that, you know, black communities uh, tend to be, you know, at a greater economic disadvantage than uh, than white communities. Right. So yeah. then you start to build up these. Um, and the fact that we even have like black and white communities is is absurd. I mean, we have here in Texas or in Dallas, we have South Dallas is historically a black part of of Dallas. Right. I mean, Oak Cliff until it's- gentrification. Sure. Again, I mean, that was well, that's that's something in and of itself, too, that's a little bit tricky, too, because I think it's really difficult. You know, when you're talking about complex things like this, uh, a lot of times it you feel sort of compelled to try to figure out the reason behind something. Well, it's right. this that causes that when the reality of it is, is there's un, sometimes innumerable amounts of things that, that play into this. Right. And, um, you know, there have been obviously historical contexts where you have sort of uh cities or municipalities or states that are like encouraging or, well, you can't move into here. We're not going to rent to you. And so now you have these sort of disadvantaged communities that are there artificially, um, that are sort of imposed by higher ups. And then you also have communities like, uh, like recent immigrant communities. When you look back at the early 20th century or even, even to some extent now where you have kind of people that, well, uh, like for example, uh, sort of the, not districts, in New York city, but you kind of boroughs boroughs. Yeah. Yeah. I mean like a lot of those boroughs in the early 20th century were, were found in the way because you had, okay, all the Jewish immigrants came over and they kind of lived together here to support themselves. And all the Italian immigrants came and lived. Right. Right. And so you do have some of that semblance of like people associating with others to try to like build a stronger community, which is, which is great. But the problem then lies where you kind of have this like, well, we don't want them in our community. So we're going to take these punitive measures to keep people out. And right. You know, it's it's tough, kind of like balancing all that whole thing, but that's yeah. that's a whole I tangent mean, in and of itself. But, but it is sort of a, a, a self perpetuating thing, right? Sure. Because yeah. like you know, we no longer actively segregate communities or businesses or well, things. It's not it's not as pervasive. I mean, I'm sure there. I mean, it would be foolish to say that it doesn't exist. That you don't have that sort of. Uh, undercurrent in some communities. Sure, sure, but but I'm saying like we don't have state and federal laws sure. that there's mandate, no there's no like right. systemic sort of, and it would be foolish to say that it's like that that idea doesn't exist because you look back you know half a century and you do see that from a from an institutional right, level right right but yeah it, we it not as at least not as pervasively and not as like legally mandated now do you have that kind of idea but those sort of tendencies remain at least for how communities sort of develop and and what you can expect uh like economically because of that right and and so you know from that I mean we're we're only one generation removed essentially from from that like two. lifestyle well, okay like, yeah it's like two generations fair, really it was our enough. grandparents that were mostly in that and our parents were the the beginning cusp of yeah, that yeah so but there is some heredity, I think, also to you know people's opinions. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, my my parents or my dad was a staunch Republican, sure. uh, and uh, 
you know, up until college, uh, I was just a Republican because my parents were, right? And so we pick up on social cues and, and fears and all sorts of things from either watching our parents, you know, react to certain things. And some of that is subconscious. Some of that is, you know, conscious learning on, on their part to say, you know, if you're in this part of town, you know, don't be here, you know, unless you have a reason to be, don't, you know, don't do whatever, right? Like there, there are small sort of things and, and language plays a huge part in that, that get passed down from, you know, the generations that came before this, that were active participants in building that kind of society. And, you know, you get all of these, all of these things that, that start to, to build together to form, um, what I think is, a majority of I, I, how racism, I think, is is still pervasive today, which is sort of these subconscious biases. Sure, right? absolutely. And so, you know, I I find myself sometimes, you know, you'll you'll see somebody, you'll be in a place, uh, you'll you'll think a thing. You may not say anything, right? Mm-hmm. But sometimes you will think a thing, and I will go, "What the f- did I think that for? What is?" what is wrong with me yeah. that, that I had like this reaction. And so if we can kind of turn the conversation toward, you know, what do we do with all of this, you know, and how do we, how should we behave? How do we make these things better? You know, I personally think that it, it is largely on an individual basis, right? Mm-hmm. I think it is uh, looking after ourselves, our thoughts and having that that sort of conversation within ourselves at why did I think this, w- recognize what it is that, that you're thinking, and to try to unpack um, the, the difficulty in, in holding, you know, these, these beliefs. And, sure. you know, it's just like if I slapped you in the face right now, you might reel back or you might slap me back, right? But you don't, you don't necessarily decide in the moment what, what it is that you're, you're going to do. Sometimes you just react. And, you know, I think it's really important when we encounter racism in our own thoughts uh, to, to really sit there and go, okay, well, why, why did this happen? How can I, you know, change this, this thing about myself? Yeah. Um, I don't know if you have any any thoughts about about sort of how do we how do we end racism? Well, I, I don't ten think step process yeah. by Jacob Brockett. Here we go. <clears throat> okay, let's hear it. Step that's, one. That's no. That's, yeah. That was a joke. Okay. Um, no, it's tough. I think that the only way that you solve any type of problems like this when you have uh, sort of prejudicial thoughts or just biases in general, the only, the only way that you're going to overcome that is through experience and whether it's, whether it's a uncomfortable experience outside of your comfort zone, whether it's just putting yourself out there to experience uh, situations in a new light in order to kind of like rewire that part of your brain that, that has these biases because it's, it's foolish to think that growing up or to think that, you are sort of that you're an island that you're not influenced by the people that you're around when you grow up you're not influenced by sort of the prevailing thoughts within your community your religious community your you know your friend group or all these other things you're heavily influenced by this and this kind of like builds this framework in your mind of like how do i view all of these situations here's my here's my sort of panel for how i react and view all these things yep and 
you know, much like learning a, learning a new language or something of that nature, it's a lot easier when you're a kid, right? You kind yeah. of, you're forming all these ideas and then you sort of get to the point where you're now, I'm an independent thinker. I, I, I think beyond these things, but that framework is, it's, it's, it's not rigid, yeah, but it's difficult. And so the only way that I think that an individual can, can get past their own biases and past their own prejudices is through experiences, through actively taking measures to, to go out and, and meet people that, you know, don't fit into that necessarily that, that pillar of yeah. society that you kind of congregate in that, you know, listening to ideas that don't necessarily come from that pillar of, sure. of society that you're in to, to understanding viewpoints that, that don't come from your own or, you know, your family or, or people that sort of exist within your, your sphere of life. And in doing so, in doing so, you know, with with a great degree of empathy for for the experiences that other people share for the thoughts that other people share that is the only way that an individual can 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 reduce i feel can reduce their biases and their prejudices and at least try to come at a mostly neutral standpoint the idea of completely removing someone's biases or or prejudice not even just just like prejudice on a uh, on when I'm talking about people, but like prejudice, like I prefer this over this. I prefer, you know, this soda to that soda. You know, right, that's right. when you're talking about prejudice as well, you know, that's another level of it too. You have preferences, right? Right, right. And I think that the, yeah, again, the, the only way that you kind of reduce that on a, on a human interactive level is by, is by trying to actively go out to, to experience new things, to experience new viewpoints and being open to the idea that, Maybe you don't have all the answers. Maybe everything that you've kind of have felt is is sort of coming from that isolated sphere and that, you know, improving your ability to sort of communicate beyond that is is the only way that's gonna get you out of that mindset. Yeah, I think I think it's really important something you said is that I'm going to phrase it a little bit differently, which is it's it's okay to get new information, to get new experiences. And to to change, to evolve, yeah. to to be you know wrong, you know there there is nothing wrong with being wrong, uh, so long as when you realize it, uh, you do something about it. Sure, right. And a lot of a lot of times in the conversation, especially in our country around around racism, um, is that you know people often. Uh, like to solidify their position when they're presented with information that's problematic to their belief system, right? Yeah. And it, it happens in, in all sorts of things, right? But uh, you know, specific to this conversation, I mean, we see it in our in our politics, right? And I think that um, you know, part of part of the the reason for that is that you know, once people feel like they're being attacked um, with you know information with facts, then uh, they become stauncher advocates for whatever their beliefs were because they see being wrong as a weakness. Now, I, I as a person don't obviously don't think that. I think that you know, based on on discussion and discovery, it it is it is a the greatest thing you can do as a human to evolve constantly your view of the world. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I think, I think discussions are important. I think reading is, is important. I think, you know, being engaged with, with news and factual information from reliable sources to help, you know, inform yourself is, is really 
a huge part of that. But here comes the kick to that. Yes. Is that a lot of times the noise sort of overtakes uh, the truth or the experience. Sure, sure. I mean, the availability of any individual to express their opinion or any organization to express their opinion or to sort of act in a way for their interests or their sort of ideology. It's, it's at an all time high. Yep. There's, there is, it is incredibly people's, people's thoughts and people's feelings are more accessible now than they've ever been at any point in history yep. ever. And it's terrifying in a way because people can be extremely vulnerable to, to that type of, that type of manipulation or that type yep. of, you know, conversation when you have people that simply have decided they've given up mm-hmm. in a sense on, they've given up on changing their worldview. They've given up on, on the idea of expanding their experiences and they're, they're fully buying into this is an idea. And now I'm going to present this to people in hopes of finding those individuals who will be expanding their ideas or maybe who haven't gotten that point yet and pulling them to one side. And so yeah. that is a big, that is a big, I guess, sort of new challenge that kind of faces the idea of creating a, uh, a post-racial society or creating sure. sort of a post, this sort of like post, uh, not segregation because, you know, from a legal standpoint, not a <laughs> desegregation, yeah. but segregation in terms of like ideas and experiences. And, and because you have very fervent voices that are very present that, mm-hmm. uh, that, that can be attractive to some people because a lot of ways it's very refreshing to hear, well, that's exactly what I think. And this person espouses that. And right. Well, right. if they're, you know, if there's all these people that are so passionate about it, it's gotta be right. I've been right the whole time. Like this yeah. is, this is reinforcing, you know, the ideas that I feel. And, and so that I think is kind of that new kink in the, in the system that, that, is the biggest challenge for people to overcome. It's expand your ideas, listen to others, have new experiences, be open to new ideas. But at the same time, we have to be able to fundamentally take those ideas and have some semblance of pulling them apart, uh, objectively looking at them, objectively determining, okay, is this something that, that is, that is real? Is this something that is being distorted to, mm-hmm. to try to convey a message? Is this something that's being distorted to manipulate for whatever personal political, uh, professional gains. And yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> I would love to say it's as simple as, yeah, go out and just talk to a bunch of people who don't believe the same thing as you <laughs> go out and, you know, uh, you know, go ride around with a, you know, go do a police ride around and say yeah. all this, or, you know, go, you know, volunteer in lower income neighborhoods and do all these things. And, and throughout the course of all this experience, you will come back as a better, well-rounded person. And those aren't necessarily terrible ideas, but sure. No, the extent of which you need to be aware of, those pressures from others who may not have your best interest in mind is it's, it's out there as well. Yeah. I mean, a a perfect example of, of of this is like the black lives matter movement. So, uh, something that, that has sprung up of, of the police violence, um, against the black communities, um, and Tamir Rice and Eric Garner and, and all of these other things that have happened in, in recent years. Shortly after that, we started to get Blue lives matter. All lives matter. And y- you, you get this, this other part of, of this conversation, which I, I think is important, which is that just because somebody um, is rallying around a, a cause, you do not need, and in my opinion, should not 
use that as an opportunity to try to diminish the the voices of of people who have a real grievance who are seeking some sort of sort of social justice reform right i don't know if you have any have any thoughts on that but i mean there are a million things I think we could talk about. And like I said early in the podcast, we just don't have time to, yeah. <laughs> to get to even... Unfortunately. Like, uh, I mean, you could do a podcast for years yeah. just on this Real this quick, topic. though, I think, I think, you know, we see it somewhat in this book and it's, it's we, you know, we, we kind of get the whole flip side of like, all right, well, everything that he's going through and then it's kind of the the sort of elements of, of prejudice that play in, into kind of the decision that the police make in this instance. And mm-hmm. I think it's really important to, to kind of separate the, the idea of, of instances of sort of like unarmed police brutality with the sort of like general police usage of force in yeah. general. And just the idea that um, police are out there kind of instigating these incidences like in mass and sort sure. of, uh, targeting people in mass and in a lot of ways, like I, I, there's no denying that, that policing of, of communities and, and people and policing in general is something that's of the utmost importance, especially when you talk about kind of the responsibilities of those that policing and the responsibilities of the people that sort of interact with the police. It's of mm-hmm. the utmost importance. And I don't want to the, I don't want to have this note, or, or at least kind of like fall into the idea that, that the police are all kind of like bad guys. Not that we're sort of eschewing or yeah, no. espousing that because I don't think either of us believe that. But, um, you know, in the grand scheme of things, the reality is, is that something along the lines of 95% of all police related sort of escalations that tend to involve police violence are usually, uh, in in armed situations with people that are that are hostile that are readily sort of doing something out of the loop and and that's not to diminish the the five percent that involve people that are unarmed because each is its own individual case and there are instances where police acted appropriately and inappropriately and at varying levels um but at the same time you know it's whenever you're talking about sort of the idea of policing in general you're kind of walking that fine line of you know, when you're, when you're kind of putting your mind in the mindset of a, of a police officer, when they're responding to a scene or something, you kind of have this, this sort of graph, this equilibrium of what is fair for the person that you're interacting with and what is safe with your own. And, you know, they're depending on the situation, you kind of have these shifting points around and, and it's tough to find that exact equilibrium of, okay, here's the guideline for exactly how you handle this situation, this instance and that. And, it's tough because you put a lot of you put a lot of responsibility in the hands of other human beings, which are obviously not infallible and, you know, could have whatever intentions. And then in the moment or whatever instance, whether it's fear, whether it's sort of a situation getting away from them that kind of takes over that that changes sort of the decision making process that happens. And, right. And that's not to say that it's justified because a lot of a lot of <laughs> almost Almost, yeah, almost uh, a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff that happens in these instances are not justifiable when you, right. when you kind of take a, when you take all the details in and you look at all the context of it and you say, why did this happen? Like what could possibly lead down the decision-making process of this to get to this point? And, and that's, you know, that's an even broader question of kind of how do we, how do we approach sort of the, the mental aspect of how we train 
people to be police officers in this country. Yeah. Like, we, we understand that they're under this intense scrutiny and this intense stress. And, you know, where do we, where do we, where do we go to help with, with breaking down this to try to, to try to prevent these things. But at the end of the day, it's, you know, it's, I don't think that there is any semblance of this, the, the idea that you kind of have this systemic police corruption. Obviously there, you know, we've seen within the news, there are small instances of, sure, of sure. like, okay, well this was clearly not, not on the up and up and everything was wrong with that. But I think it's just important to slide in there yeah, because I, we, cause that's such a huge topic in this book is kind of the back and forth. And in this instance, you know, this specific instance in the book, all we, we get that, that whole sort of like gut wrenching part where it's like, all right, no charges are going to be filed. And every muscle or, you know, every thought in your brain is going like, why, like, why, why does this person get off, get away with this? And why do they get to do this? And yeah. the idea of it being this, this, you know, very clear cut sort of, well, they did this and this. So they had these sort of ideas in mind. They had these prejudices in mind or whether they even thought about it before doing this. It's, it's not that simple. No. And we would be doing a disservice to, you know, to, to law enforcement everywhere by assuming that it were. Yeah. And so I, I think we could probably wrap the episode by, by saying that this issue, like any sort of, you know, societal issue that, that we'll encounter uh, in any future generation is multifaceted. It is extremely complex and there is no one answer to making things better. And at the end of the day, the things that we can do is that we can engage, we can discuss, we can, you know, make sure that we take reliable information and, you know, take action in a reasonable way to move society forward. And, you know, f on an individual basis, you know, for, for me personally, it's, it's just about treating people with respect and, you know, assuming that everybody has the best intention, right? The golden rule, man. Like when in doubt, I yeah. find that basically in every scenario and it's, it's tough because life is scary and every situation can bring its own interesting twists and turns. But, uh, I have always felt that when in doubt, the golden rule is something that is, that is the best guiding principle to how you should, you should take on everything in life, treat others the way you want to be treated. Yeah. I'll, I'll end on, on an anecdote. Uh, so my, my grandfather, uh, was one of the, one of the most interesting people that I've, I've ever known when it comes to just encountering people, uh, randomly. So he was the kind of person who would say hello to anybody, anywhere, anytime and strike up a conversation, uh, regardless of, of, race, like where we were in the time, he was an elevator talker, which you know that there are like unwritten rules about like engaging people yeah. on an, on an elevator, but not that you would know this, but he was probably a urinal talker too. Uh, I don't know that, but, uh, the, the thing about my grandfather that, that I try so hard to emulate is that he was a person that was genuinely, genuinely curious about other people. And um, to the point where when, when he passed away, uh, we, we put on his, um, on his headstone at the, at the VA cemetery, uh, love all live bravely. And that's, that's a motto that, that I tried to live by through and through. I have it tattooed on my fricking arm because I, I believe that so much that 
you really should approach people with the utmost care and, and curiosity. And I think through that, your social interactions and hopefully society at large will be a better place as opposed to just standing our ground wherever that is and however we are as as people. So yeah. uh, with that, we should uh, we should talk about next episode. Let's do it. It's your it's your pick. Yeah. So, so getting back into uh, getting back into our traditional routine for our uh, normal listeners at home. Yeah, so we're going to read The Sympathizer by, uh, and I'm going to butcher this again, I meant to find the phonetic announcement, but or pronouncement, but I believe it's Viet Than Nguyen. Uh, I swear to goodness, before we record the episode, I will actually make sure that I say the name correctly. Okay. Uh, but it is sort of a, an espionage uh, book um, dealing with... Uh, the the Vietnam War and, and kind of all the uh, all the fallout with uh, with that conflict, um, and it won a Pulitzer, um, and uh, it should be Carnegie Medal. Yeah, Carnegie Medal. Uh, so it should be a pretty uh, pretty good book. I'm excited. So yeah, I think it, I think it'd be a, an interesting departure, um, especially from this episode. But I'm I'm glad I'm glad we did this book. Um, you know, I think it just. It's a different topic for us, and it was nice to kind of go off the beaten path a little bit. Absolutely, and obviously, want to make ourselves available if anybody who's you know, uh, I guess a part of our of our targeted audience for this uh, this uh, last read. You know, you can hit us up on Twitter. We'd love to have a, a an even more sort of greater conversation about these sorts of things, or if you just have questions about how we felt about certain aspects of the book. I love, I love, uh, uh, influencing <laughs> America's youth, uh, for the future. So please do not hesitate to hit us up, uh, and let us know your thoughts. Let us know if you have, you know, anything about our thoughts that you want clarified, you know, we can actually get into a little bit more, uh, depth with less time constraints in that sort of situation. Yeah, absolutely. So feel free to hit us up, uh, at better bookshelf, um, on Twitter. Uh, if you want to send us an email, uh, it is just, uh, better the bookshelf at gmail.com. I don't think we've thrown out our email before, but I'm willing to do it. Email's an old man's game, Ryan. Hey, a you know, old men, you know, emails if some, are old man, somebody, game. somebody wants to, to, to write up an email. I will, I will fricking read that thing. People are going to hit us up in Twitter DMS. <laughs> that's that's they, the young man's they, game. They could they could also do that. Uh, so with that, we'll wrap this episode. Thank you for listening. Uh, the next episode will be the sympathizer. Until next time. <laughs>